0: Our text this morning is Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke 8, 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went. The people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. Declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace." While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, "Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more." But Jesus, son, hearing this, answered him, "Do not fear. Only believe." And she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that someone should be given her, or he he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray.
1: Uh, Father, I ask that you give us spiritual understanding. uh, As we look... At your word. Uh, God, we know that uh, the flesh, the sinful flesh, cannot interpret the things of the Spirit. And so, God, I pray that you give us uh, supernatural understanding. God, I pray you soften our hearts that we might uh, wait for Christ. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have uh, seen movies like the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks' uh, character uh, is in an airplane that goes down in the ocean and he survives the crash and he washes up uh, on the shore of a deserted island. And the whole movie is basically, uh, him on this island trying to survive, uh, really waiting for someone to come to his rescue. Like any good movie, uh, they personalize his character. He's about ready to get married to the love of his life right before this uh, crash happens. And uh, throughout the whole show, as he's surviving on this island, It's like you just can't wait for the time when he gets to be reunited with his fiance. And uh, I like the movie all the way up until the end where all this time waiting, a rescue boat finally comes and she's married and has kids. And it's been many years since uh, the plane has gone down. And really... Uh, he's in society, he can have other food to eat, but he's sad. All this waiting, all this struggle for uh, disappointment, all of us can relate to waiting being hard. Whether you're re- waiting for a train on Dakota to uh, get going, whether you're waiting for your food, I've... I don't know if you've ever been impatient at a restaurant or at a drive-thru. I don't know if you've ever struggled with waiting uh, in your uh, financial uh, world, whether you have a business or whether you're trying to pay off debt, and you're waiting for success to come. You're waiting to finally get over uh, the hump and get to what you've been hoping for. Uh, my question for you is, what are you waiting for? Or who are you waiting for? Because we only wait for that which has value. In fact, we all ask the question, is this worth waiting for? I'll sit for a couple minutes on Dakota with the train that's not moving, but not longer than that, it's not worth it. I'm going to go over the bypass after a while, you might go to your favorite restaurant and wait an hour and a half because it's worth waiting for. There's value in the things we wait for. And I want all of us to consider, what is it that we are waiting on? Where is our value? The New Testament is full in the Old Testament as well is describing God's people as people who wait. We're awaiting waiting people. Uh, Jesus says, they'll know us by our love. They'll know you are my disciple by your love. But you could also say, they will know you're my disciple by your waiting. Jesus, in fact, taught this to his disciples through a parable uh, In Luke 12.35, he says, "...stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say, he," meaning the master," will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he'll come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then a few verses later he says, Blessed is the servant whom the master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But that servant says to himself, My master is coming. And begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect Him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut Him in pieces and put Him with the unfaithful. So Jesus taught you can divide people into two groups. One group is waiting for their master, doing what their master has called them to do in the meantime before He returns. And then there's people who are tired of waiting. It's been too long. Seems like surely he isn't going to come tonight. He hasn't come over this great amount of time. So they begin to quit waiting and they start to live now. They start to party and get drunk and to find hope in the here and the now. And I just want to give you a few more examples. James says this. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how a farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I don't know if you're a farmer in this room, if you would describe yourself as patient for the rains, but you don't have a choice. You need to wait for them. You can't control when they come. And James tells believers to be patient and to wait. Jude, in Jude 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Be working to establish your hearts, keeping yourself in the love of Christ. That means preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Don't become bored with it. Don't lose hope because Christ hasn't returned yet. In Romans 8.18, Paul says, I don't consider that the uh, sufferings of this present time are worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Ever since God cursed the earth because of man's sin, creation eagerly waits. Every hurricane, every storm is Creations, impatience, every dog that attacks a human being is creation longing to be set free from this futility. But there's one set of God's creation or probably a couple, the fallen angels and fallen man who aren't waiting for God. In Romans 8.23, we're told not only the creation, but we ourselves as believers who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Holy Spirit comes with what? Patience, faithfulness comes in to us and causes us to have an eagerly longing to eagerly long for Christ's return. And then uh, in verse 24, Romans 8, he says, for this hope we were saved. Now hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is what faith is. This is waiting for all the promises to come true. Not defecting to plan B and finding hope somewhere else. You have Simeon in Luke 2, this old man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the Messiah. And then you have the prophetess Anna who was 84 years old, she did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting uh, in prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. When Paul is uh, writing to the Corinthians, he prays that they would not lack any spiritual gift in chapter 1, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians. And then he says, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship. And so, as Paul talks to the Corinthians, he's saying, I pray that you have spiritual power as you wait, because that's what it means to be a believer. When he wrote to the Galatians, he says, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Rather than trusting in the circumcision that comes by the law and by man's good works, he says we wait for our righteousness, whose promise to return and come. He wrote to the Philippians, and he says that a report, uh, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you how you turn to God from idols and serve the living and true God and do wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's wrath coming on everyone in the world, but for those who wait on Him, He delivers us from the wrath to come by taking our sins away. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. And then Hebrews 9.27, if you've been here very long at all, you've heard me quote this many times. I think it's one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible for American evangelical Christians, for Christianity in America, period. Because here's what it says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, it's appointed by God that we will die because of our sin. It's just a fact. Everyone will. The second a baby's born, they begin the death process. That's why the doctors are so careful that they don't get some sickness or infection right away. It's appointed all of us will die. And then it says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's why He came the first time, the second time... He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. There's two types of people in this world. Those who do not pray, Lord Jesus, come. In fact, they might pray, Lord, don't come this week because my hope's in this. And I've been waiting for this. Maybe I'm not married yet. Maybe I don't have kids yet. Maybe I want to see my business go. Jesus is coming for those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Him, Those who've set their hope on Him. Tell me that's not terrifying to the church in America. How many of our churches are filled with people longing and waiting for Christ, are marked off by that? So I ask you, what's your prayer when you pray? The last... Two verses in the book of Revelation say this, he who testifies to these things, and that's Christ, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with all. Amen. That's how the Bible ends. Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. And his people saying, amen, Lord Jesus, come. You're our hope. A reasonable question to ask is why should I wait for Jesus? Why should I wait for Jesus? I mean, that would mean, when does Jesus come? He comes at the end. That means for the rest of your life, you change it. That means you die to yourself. You quit living like the rest of the world and you set your hope on this one who's coming at the end. Let's admit, this is a big cost. This is not living like the rest of the world lives. I was just in a store in in uh, uh, the mall in Sioux Falls this weekend and the song was playing and I... Not gonna sing it to you, and I don't remember all the words, but basically the song was there's nothing after tomorrow, so live for it today. Do whatever you want. Set your hope on whatever you want, live it up, do it now. This is not how a believer lives. So from this text today. I'm going to show you eight reasons why after encountering Christ in this text, you ought to wait for Him. Put all your hope, put all your eggs in that basket. And this is just 16 verses. This is the beauty of going through a gospel. We get to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ every Sunday. It's like the most exciting thing. And yet, I'm just going to show you eight things in this text that I'm, I'm saying at the end, can you resist him? Can you put your hope in something else? You know, to the world, when you say there's one way to heaven, it sounds crazy. But when you read a text like this, and you get to the end of it, it makes sense. If you have spiritual eyes to see. Yeah, <laughs> where is there any other hope? So let's look at it. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, so he was, to remind you uh, of what we went through last week, he was in the country of the Gerasenes on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, he just cast uh, over 2,000 demons into a herd of pigs. And they went out of, out of the demoniac and they rushed Uh, over a cliff into the ocean. And if you remember, the people came and they saw the demoniac man in his right mind and that scared them more than of the demoniac himself. They said, get out of here. We don't want you in our presence. They couldn't handle being around deity. They just wanted him away. That could actually be you this morning. Maybe you don't want truth. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit softens your heart, that you would lean in and see the beauty of Christ this morning. But it says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him. So this is on the west side of the lake. For they were all waiting for Him. Now, they weren't all waiting for Him the same. In this group, you have those who are waiting to find Him, Do watch him do something wrong according to the law of Moses so that they can accuse him and kill him. You have some people waiting for him because they want to be impressed by amazing miracles. But we know for sure there's two people that are desperately in a saving way waiting for Jesus. Now, if you've been lost for a long time and... You're on an island and you're looking out into that ocean. You're imagining what would it be like to finally see the ship coming that's going to save you. And in this crowd, as Jesus makes the seven-mile track across the Sea of Galilee, uh, we read that in this crowd there came a man named Jairus, this verse 41, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, a ruler of the synagogue is the absolute highest religious position you could have locally in uh, the Jewish faith. You could be a scribe or Pharisee located in Jerusalem, but you would be the highest religious person in your town. This is in Capernaum, and uh, he's the ruler of the synagogue. He decides what texts are going to be read, who's going to read the text. Uh, He picks the teachers that will share. He's looked up to by everyone uh, in that community if if he's made it to that point. And this is Jairus who came and fell at Jesus' feet and he implored him to come to his house For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. As I read this on Monday, I couldn't help but get teared up when I read she was 12 years old. That's how old Ella is. This is this man's only daughter and she's dying. And he's on the shore and he's looking out and he's waiting for Jesus to come. Earlier on, Jesus has already showed up in his synagogue and cast out demons in front of him. He's already healed in Capernaum a lot. But maybe now that his need is great, he realizes our only hope is Christ. This will be an unpopular move for his position in the synagogue. But he stands there, and he's waiting for Jesus, and Jesus shows up finally, and he comes and falls at his feet. And then we're just told, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. How many people need to be healed in this crowd and this man comes and says, My daughter's dying, and Jesus goes. You see, he cares personally about individuals, not just crowds. You know, we see politicians that care about crowds and want to be the nice guy. How many of them are willing to be, you know, brought aside from the crowd to? change maybe this wide effect and go personally with someone but Christ does and it says when Jesus went the people pressed around him imagine remember these aren't stories these are historical accounts nobody in the world really knows about Aberdeen, South Dakota in the whole scheme of things But if there was a man who healed everyone that came to him, like that, totally healed, no physical therapy, every time, what do you think Aberdeen would look like in one month as word got out? It would be chaos. Can you imagine at this point in Jesus' ministry, (laughs) we just read, and they pressed around him. The, des- the 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 desperate, I'm going to make up a word here, the desperate cry of the human heart living in a fallen world with bodies that are failing and family members who are dying, what would you do to get to Him? Well, they're pressing around Jesus. Everyone wants to get close to Him. And then we're told in verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her life, uh, or spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, it was devastating to imagine Ella dying and what it would be like waiting for the only one that could heal her. But this is equally as devastating. Imagine bleeding for 12 years. What, it, what effect does that have on your physical strength? What kind of pain does that bring on you physically? 12 years. And not just the physical, but the social implications. In Leviticus 15, Here's what it meant for someone in a Jewish community who had a discharge of blood. Leviticus 15.25 says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of her discharge she shall be she shall continue in uncleanliness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as a bed of impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanliness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe themselves in water and be unclean until evening. This woman, everything she sat on, if anyone else sat on it, they would be ceremonially unclean. Every person she touched would be unclean. They would have to wait to the end of the day. They would have to be cleansed before they could have contact with anyone else. This woman would have had to live outside of the city. Everyone would have said, stay away from her. And you're saying, why does God put this in His law? Well, when God cursed the earth lovingly, in hope, he subjected the to the world to futility in Romans 8. But what it does is it, it's like flashing red lights saying, you need to be healed. You need to be clean. And the physical is a reminder of the spiritual need. Every time a woman gives birth in pain and, and, and it's painful, it's a reminder of of the fall of Adam and Eve. Every time a farmer has to kill a weed, it's the same thing. And for this woman, she suffered physically, she suffered socially, she suffered economically, spent all of her money, all of her money on physicians. She went to Mayo Clinic and she did all the essential oils. She tried it all. Her money's gone. No more hope. She could not be healed by anyone. I'm guessing it was something so devastating you would try anything. Physically, socially, economically, religiously. She could not hear the Word of God read. The scrolls were locked up in the synagogue. She could not hear teaching. This is the woman who comes up behind Jesus in verse 44 and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. The garment he would have had, he would have had this uh, sash thing thrown over her shoulder with some tassels on it. She came up behind. She's sneaking through the crowd. We know she wanted to remain hidden as we're going to see in a few verses here. She comes up behind him and she thinks, if I could only touch him. If I could only touch him. And when she says that, when we're going to read that here in a few minutes, it's in the imperfect. It was as if she's going, if I can only get to him and touch him. If I can only get to him and touch him, I will be healed. And she touches the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She knew it. I don't know if that was because of pain or how she knew it, but she knew immediately she was healed. So you would think Jesus is on an important mission. I think he already knows what's going on. I don't think he asked because he doesn't know who this is, but job done, right? She's healed. Just keep going. She doesn't want to be seen by anyone anyways. But, verse 45, Jesus says, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, the one who just blurts out what all the disciples are thinking when they're too afraid to say it, he says, Master, the crowds surrounding you are pressing in on you. Now I'm telling you, Peter's rolling his eyes here. It's It's a stupid question in the eyes of the disciples. Are you kidding me? Has anyone ever been more pressed in on today? on the face of the earth and is happening to you right now? And the question you're going to ask us is, who touched you? And then Jesus says, verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. This is mystery beyond mystery. Jesus, God in the flesh, feels the healing power go out of Him into her. If you don't think God's a personal Savior, you're missing what we're reading here. What does it mean that God feels something when He saves us? When He heals us? And then... Uh, verse 47 when the woman saw that she was not hidden that's how we know she wanted to be she came trembling and falling down before him now she's not supposed to be in a crowd she's not supposed to be there but she's desperate and she just doesn't care anymore but now she's caught and now the great teacher has he become unclean now Does he have supernatural knowledge to know that this dirty woman made him unclean? When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, that's important, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Literally the Greek is your faith has saved you. It's sozo is the word. It means saved you. So Jesus doesn't just care about her physical healing because everyone else knows her as an outcast, but he calls her out publicly and wants to know who touched him. He knows. And as she declares what happens publicly, Jesus also declares publicly that this woman is no longer an outcast. She's clean. What a loving Christ we have Uh, to care not only for physical healing, but He speaks. He says, go in peace. No. A sinful, dirty woman touched God. You can't go in peace. You're supposed to die when that happens but her faith has made her well. She trusted in Jesus, and Jesus declared peace. You think she needed Jesus? She needed Jesus. And then we read in verse uh, 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Imagine how devastating this would be for Jairus. He's he's like, A woman? She's been sick for 12 years. My 12-year-old daughter, she's maybe only been sick for days, but she's dying. Think of the hope. He just healed her. My daughter's going to be healed. Oh, oh, leave the teacher alone. Your daughter's dead. Let him be. He's got more important things to do. But then Jesus says, on hearing this, verse 50, do not fear. (laughs) My daughter's dead. Do not fear. you kidding me? Only believe, and she'll be well. When they came to the house... He allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now here's what's going on. In Jewish culture, uh, your funeral begins immediately when someone dies because you have to bury them before the end of the day. Before sundown, before Jairus and Jesus even get to the house, the funeral's already started. They had professional mourners and weepers in those days that were, when someone was sick, they would show up ahead of time so that as soon as they died, the funeral would begin. And there's flute players that play this horrible high notes, uh, almost like a sad, chaotic song which illustrates the pain of death. And then you have weepers who scream and weep along with the family members that would be authentically weeping over a 12-year-old girl whose life is just beginning. She's just becoming a woman. And they're all in the house and all this is going on in Mark 5, we get a little bigger picture of this. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And then in verse 40, it says, they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. In Matthew's account, He says, when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl's not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed. She was dead. Some people struggle with this and say, well, maybe she wasn't really dead. Maybe he really didn't raise the girl from the dead, but the next verses tell us that her spirit entered back into her. Death means separation. When your spirit leaves your body, you're dead. As when you put the body in the ground. When Christ returns and your spirit that has been present with God comes with Him and your body raises out of the ground and you get your new spiritual body and you enter back in together, that's the consummation of, of your salvation over death. You know, when Paul spoke of uh, it's better to be apart from the body and present with the Lord, but he says, but not to be found naked. A lot of us think of death as what death is. Your body goes in the ground, your spirit goes to be with God forever. That's not good theology. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that as soon as the spirit is apart from the body, it's instantly in the presence of the Lord but that's not the consummation of our salvation. It's a disembodied spirit waiting for the culmination of our salvation. When that spirit enters again into that body that is raised from the dead, that's when the consummation of our salvation is. And Jesus uh, is saying something amazing. John MacArthur writes, Jesus declaration that the girl has not died but was asleep brought a revolutionary new perspective to death. By liking it to sleep, he redefined death as temporary. Thus sleep is used in Scripture as a metaphor for the body in death. But while the body sleeps temporarily in death, the soul does not. Ten times in the New Testament after this, whenever a believer dies, it says they slept. Because it's a temporary separation of the body from the spirit. This is what makes hell so bad. In Revelation, we're told the first death's bad. You suffer in your first death. But the second death, which is not your spirit being separated from your body, but your spirit being separated from God for all eternity, that's hell. That's hell. Horrible. But Jesus says she's sleeping and everyone laughs. But wherever Jesus shows up, the curse flees away. Every funeral Jesus shows up at stops. The weepers, the flute players, they're out of a job instantly. Taking her by the hand, verse 54, he called saying, child arise and her spirit returned she got up at once and her spirit returned not a spirit hers her personal spirit that's why at a funeral your mom your dad your spouse your son or daughter they're not there they're with God but her spirit came back and her parents were amazed and he charged them to tell no one what happened. Well, here's what I think's going on here. I think the reason why he only took Peter, James, and John in there, kicked everyone else out, took the mom and dad, Peter, James, and John, is because Jesus cares about the little details of people's lives. And he doesn't want this girl being scared to death, waking up to horrible commotion. But he gets a quiet room and instantly... When she comes back, what does he say? Get her something to eat. You want to know why? Because he cares about the intimate details of your life. All we care about is, oh, he raised the dead. He stopped a woman from bleeding. Well, yeah, Jesus didn't seem all about the big hubbub of all that, but the person who's suffering, who he came to minister to and save. And that's why I think he says, don't go tell everyone. The parent's response, the temptation would be to leave your daughter there and go tell everyone this amazing thing you just saw. And he says, just stay. Stay here, get her something to eat. And we see the personal nature of our Savior. Saul, so, the charge to you in this text is this. Wait for Jesus for he is God. Only God could do these things. And these eight things we see in these 16 verses, and we'll go through them quickly. He came to save all types of sinners. Now, on the socioeconomic spectrum, you have the ruler of the synagogue, highest socially in the community, and you have the outcast woman. And you have both of them being saved by Jesus Christ. He came to save all Types of sinners, Mary, in her Magnificent, back in, in Luke uh, 146, sang this song of praise uh, in light of uh, Jesus' birth. My soul magnifies the Lord, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The ruler bows before Jesus. And the humble is exalted when they come to Him. Wait for Jesus for He is God and He came to save all types of sinners like you. Second, wait for Jesus because Jesus is compassionate. I could just go through text after text after text to show this. I'll just read a couple. Jesus said a bruised reed He will not break, a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. A bruised reed was used for playing a song on. They would use a reed. When it became bruised, they'd throw it away. He's saying when the Messiah comes, He doesn't break a bruised reed. And he doesn't put out a smoldering wick. When our candles get down to where they all burned up and there's no more wick, what do we do? We put them out. That's not what Jesus is like. He comes to those who are at the end of their rope and He fans it back into a flame. He makes that reed make music again. Matthew 14, fourteen we're told that he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Mark 6, 34, we read, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus did not come down to just do this big thing in the crowd, but he came down for individual people to save them. He cares for you personally, even in the small details of life. We've already talked about that. He alone can heal you. Hey, power came out of him. That woman did nothing to earn her healing except come to him, and the power came out of him. There is not a doctor in the world that can heal you, ultimately. You will die. It's a fact. They might make you better for a little bit. You will die. He alone can heal you. He he saves you self-sacrificially. It cost Him when she touched Him. I think it's uh, pointing forward to Jesus' death on a cross when He heals us spiritually, cost Him His life. He alone can speak... peace between you and God. How in the world can Jesus, a man, only if He's a God-man can He speak peace and say your faith has saved you? Not faith, period. We live in a world that just says, oh, if you have faith in something, you'll be saved. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you have faith in Him, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Second Timothy two five. He alone can speak peace between you and God. A sinner touched Jesus and he said peace. Why? Because he is the one who can take away our sins. Seventh, he teaches salvation through faith in him alone. I already went through that one. Eight, he alone can defeat death. The end of your death or the end of your sin is death. All of us are going to die. If you're going to build the house of your dreams, you save up all the money and you're going to hire someone to build your house. Are you going to go find someone right out of the Votek and Watertown, first house he's ever built? You're not going to do that. You're going to go find the best builder you've ever seen. Well, there's only been one man to come and chase death away. He himself, when he was nailed to the cross, died. Everyone thought they had lost all their hope. But then he even conquers death Himself, And the Bible tells us in First Corinthians 15, he's the first fruits of those who will rise. Meaning if Jesus rose, everyone who trusts in him will also rise. So let me ask you the question. What are you hoping in? Where are you placing your hope? Many of you are placing your hope in yourself. And the proof is you're not praying very much. You're not saying, Lord Jesus, come. You're trying to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Some of you are waiting for that special someone. Others of you are waiting for your business to take off. Just like the movie Castaway, that all comes to fruition. You're not going to be that happy unless you're waiting on Christ. It's the only secure place to build your life. I want to leave you with this. Isaiah 40, verse 30. Even youths, the strongest on this earth, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. One more, I lied. Psalm 25, 2. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. So, Jairus and this woman were waiting for Jesus. And they got him and they were saved. And my prayer is, that's where you're building your hope. I hope you're building, putting the eggs of your life looking and waiting and saying, Lord Jesus, come. Father, thank You that in just 16 verses we encounter such a glorious, kind, powerful Savior, just the type we need. Lord, we thank You that we need not fear death, but set our hope on You and wait for You. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.